Hey guys, it's Omar Khan, co-founder of Theta Trading Co. We teach people how to trade options to generate significant income on the side, and it takes as little as 30 minutes a day or less. Uh, that's pretty attractive. I've personally been using this trading strategy for the last 20 years and really refined it down over the years. It's allowed me to generate enough down payments to buy over 30 plus properties in the GTA and why you can do it as well. The only thing stopping you is you. As long as you have an open mind and you're willing to learn, I believe that any single person can learn how to do this. I'm here to let you know that we have a weekend course coming up on the weekend of March 28th. It's a Saturday and Sunday. It's full two days, nine and a half hours each day where we teach you everything there is to know from the beginning of how the stock market works to the end of day two, where you'll understand how to profitably trade options for yourself on a go forward basis. Our courses normally do sell out. So I would encourage you to, uh, to, to book uh, quickly. All the three courses we've done so far have been sold out or very near sold out. And if this sounds too good to be true, it's just a matter of the fact that most people will never understand this skill. How to make such decent returns in a short time span. But once you understand the concept, you'll know why it works. Uh, just to give an example, one student we had that took the course in January that made, has already made over $6,000 in their first two weeks uh, with zero stock trading experience. We've had people from all walks of life, from teachers to truck drivers, to lawyers, to doctors, to accountants, and anything in between that you can think of. So don't think that, hey, I, don't, I couldn't learn this. No, you can definitely learn this. It's all a matter of putting the effort. Uh, we have a special offer today for Breakthrough Real Estate Podcast listeners, and we're offering a $500 discount to our next live weekend course on the weekend of March 28th and 29th, Saturday and Sunday at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, taught by yours truly and my best friend and co-founder, Matthew Todman. If you're interested in taking this course, just go to 30minutestocktrader.com. That's 30minutestocktrader.com and use the code Breakthrough to get $500 off our next live weekend course. The website again is 30, the number's 30, minutestocktrader.com. Use the discount code BREAKTHROUGH for $500 off. We strongly encourage you to uh, attend. I promise you the knowledge will change your life financially forever. Thank you. Hi, this is Dion Baig from Butler Mortgage. We're currently ranked the number one mortgage brokerage in Ontario and number two in Canada. And much of our success is due to the fact that we help clients acquire multiple investment properties. If you'd like to talk with a mortgage advisor who specializes in investment property, you can reach me at 888-684-8326. To learn more about what's going on in the world of investment property financing, check out episode 23 of the Breakthrough Podcast, where I discuss the topic with Robin Sandy. Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast, Episode 104. If you're looking for the skills and tools to succeed in real estate investing, you've come to the right place. This show is about breaking through barriers, breaking through limiting beliefs, and breaking through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. This is the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Rob Brake and Sandy McKay. Welcome back, everybody, to the Breakthrough Podcast. Hey, Sandy, how are you doing? Fantastic. Yourself? I'm doing really, really good. Really good. Don't ask me why. i just been, you know, getting up early, getting stuff done, going to the gym, all that kind of stuff, so. We're, I guess uh, new year, right? New, uh, new year, new you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't follow that philosophy. I try to stay, try to stay uh, steady. You know, steady incline going up. Yeah. Uh, what's awesome. new with you? Um, been on vacation. Just got back, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm energized. Actually, I've been a couple days back, so I got uh, over the tiredness of flying around and whatnot, and uh, got a lot of energy. I'm excited to. Grind out some uh, hard work for a while uh, <clears throat> in the Caribbean there. I uh, actually went on a, like a sailing trip, which I've never done before, which was really cool. Lived on a boat for about uh, seven days. and uh, Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. It was, cool. it, was, it was neat. I, we had a, a friend of mine uh, into that. He's a, so he was our captain. And uh, we sailed from port to port kind of, kind of thing and had fun. Nice. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Would have been, uh, I guess, rejuvenating. 
Definitely rejuvenating. I'm, 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 I'm got a lot of energy. I'm, I'm like you. I'm excited. I'm waking up early this week. I'm uh, in the gym, feeling good, and uh, ready to ready to do some real estate business. We're probably excited because we have such a great guest waiting in the in the background here, Andrew Hines. Definitely could be part of it. Yeah. Hey absolutely. guys, Andrew Hines is with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Morning, and he's got one of those setups that his microphone. He just sounds like Howard Stern on there. He's got the really. I just need a slightly deeper voice. No, I'll try I think and boom you, it nice and deep here for you. <laughs> you got it going on. That sounds really good. So thanks for being here, Andrew. Appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you. I I know we've been a long time coming. We've been trying to set this up, and I got to get both you guys on my podcast here. It uh, has been as well. You know the problem with your podcast? You do it the old-fashioned way, where everyone has to be in the same room. I know, but you know, sometimes, you, <laughs> sometimes good things you got to wait for. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get there. Well, I'll get into Andrew's Andrew's bio here in a sec. Uh, before we do that, I want to remind everyone to jump on over to iTunes. Um, actually, jump on over to our website, breakthroughreipodcast.ca, first of all, and uh, pick up anything you want there. As from our previous shows, we've got uh, 103 to to browse through and listen to, um, and also get our free report there, the ultimate strategy for building wealth through real estate. And that'll get you on our email list, get you updated on everything we're doing. And uh, also you'll uh, get an email every time we, we release a show. And please, when you're there, leave a rating and review for the show. Right now we have 267 ratings. Uh, not all of them are five stars, but we're doing pretty good. 238 five-star reviews and a couple of new reviews to read through here. So I'm just going to grab a couple of them since the last show and, and let you know what people think. Now, I haven't even read these, so they could be good or they could be bad. <clears throat> Here we go. Uh, the push I needed. Uh, Niagara Rents says, and he gives it five stars and says, hey, guys, great podcast. The wealth of information you guys have built here is amazing. You can pick and choose which episodes are relevant to you. Your podcast gave me the little push I needed to buy my first rental property. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, Niagara Rents. Uh, Joel Demings says learning so much five stars yesterday i had a chance to talk to rob by phone i was amazed that he returned my call and was so grateful for his sage advice uh started listening a month ago to the podcast and my rei knowledge has grown exponentially my wife and i are looking forward to growing our portfolio because of breakthrough thanks guys and keep up the great work oh that's great yeah i call everybody back anyone who wants to give me a call please do i will definitely call you back i, I I love to help and love to talk. So let's see. Last one here. Um, Jake Blades says, love the show. Uh, hey, guys. I love what you're doing with this podcast. Only started listening about a month ago, and I've already learned so much. Recently, I purchased my first home, and I'm very excited to keep learning before I delve deeper into the world of real estate investing. One request for a show topic I would like to make is if you could have someone on who is investing and has experience in Alberta to come on and talk about their story and some of the differences in the markets in cities like Edmonton, Red Deer, and Calgary. We had someone off from Red Deer, didn't we? Red Deer? Did I don't think so. Did we? Mm -hmm. I feel like we have. I'm sorry it's escaping me right now. But uh, uh, I feel like I'm not alone in the group of listeners out west here that would like to hear something more about this topic. Always, I look forward to your future shows and thank you so much for what you guys do with this podcast. So I really appreciate all of those and keep them coming, guys. I love seeing these new reviews and, uh, and they help us. They help us get guests like Andrew Hines on our show who otherwise probably would have snubbed us. <laughs> so um, keep them coming. So, uh, segueing into Andrew, let's talk about Andrew. Andrew's a real estate investor from Burlington, Burlington, Ontario, and he's primarily invested in student rentals in London, Ontario. Uh, as of the time of, of this interview, he's approximately 4 million real estate holdings and is the host, like we mentioned, of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Andrew advocates the use of the Burr BRRR method to achieve financial independence and has become quite proficient in construction management, building, and development due to his value-add approach to real estate investing. Andrew owns several, several companies, including a construction general contracting company and uh, has built out multiple investment property units in Southwestern Ontario while managing his own portfolio. So again, welcome to the show, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again for having me. 
Yeah, welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much for being on. And uh, I don't want to give anyone the impression that you're that you're snooty. That was just a little joke there, of course. We've yeah, met several times in person, and uh, you're a very nice, wonderful, gracious human being. So thank you Appreciate for being that. on. Same to you. Um, so let's jump right in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in real estate investing? So I'll go right back to the beginning. Um, so so me as a kid, like growing up, my, my family, you know, they weren't real estate investors, didn't... Uh, um, you know, just own their own home. And uh, I just remember my parents kind of struggled a bit, right? They didn't have all the money that they wanted. And, and um, you know, I, I remember walking in on conversations where they were complaining or, or talking about how they couldn't afford things. And I just, I, at a younger age, I became committed to figuring out a better way of doing things. So I had my eyes open, figured I'd go get really educated, went to Western University in London, Ontario. And um, as I was there, I was seeing my friends paying rent in, you know, these buildings right across from the gates. I, I worked out some rough numbers and I figured out that the owner was making like $150,000 uh, net, which I knew was like double what, what my dad's you know, salary was. And I'm like, wow, okay. So all I need to do is own those four and, you know, I've replaced that income for life. So at that moment, I knew I was going to get involved, but I knew nothing and uh, so I went through business school, um, wanted to be an entrepreneur, didn't know where that was going to take me, didn't know how I was going to get there. Um, so I ended up teaching right after I graduated. I taught at Western uh, teaching introductory business, first year course for two years. And uh, when that contract ended, uh, the stars aligned and I ended up uh, meeting my now wife and um, we started talking. Her mom was uh, a very established and is a very established real estate developer, investor, so I went to work for her as a mortgage agent and uh, I got into the industry in 2010. I started working with investors, helping them get financing. And it just, you know, it got me thinking. And uh, soon enough, I bought my first couple properties in that first year or two. Um, eventually uh, I realized I wanted more. I ran out of cash. So, uh, you know, the classic wall you hit when you just do buy and hold and don't add value. I didn't know how to add value to real estate at the time. Uh, but then I, I took a stab at uh, trying to develop a property, take a house down and, and build a duplex way more than I could chew at the time failed miserably. Um, didn't end up, uh, didn't end up doing that deal. Um, and, uh, so I finally got into my first, uh, student rental in 2015 and, um, well, officially my first and I renovated it. So I, I kind of set my sights on it. I, I had been watching some people, uh, I had been seeing uh, one particular investor making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars flipping these student rentals. So I knew the value was there. I didn't want to sell. I wanted to keep. I did end up selling a few of them as I was kind of gearing up and getting qualified to get mortgages on them. But uh, yeah, that was, that was where it started. So I started building additions, rejigging layouts. I learned how to be a general contractor, never ever thinking I would go down that road, but out of necessity, I, I, I just ended up there. I ended up doing that. And uh, now I, I generate a contract for other people, investors, uh, and again, never a place I thought I'd be, but I do my own projects. I do other people's projects and uh, it's just grown from there. So I, I know that was a long-winded uh, version, but uh, I just want to give you a bit of context there. No, that's really good. And that's exactly what we're looking for, right? It's just a little background on where you started and why. Um, now you mentioned a couple of different strategies there, but let's just talk about the type of properties that you invest in. So can you, can you, uh, tell us maybe your favorites and why? Okay. So, you know, it's, it's not all black and white like that. I could say, you know, for one reason, I love student rentals. So student rentals are something where if, if the financial, um, challenges of getting them financed didn't exist, I'd say that was, that would be my absolute favorite property to invest in. Um, student rentals are a business and it's not like family homes where you have a rent cycle that could be anywhere from some warm month to another warm month. Like students, there are specific times that matter. And if you miss them, um, it sucks. But if you hit them, if, if you, if you know how to manage a student rental properly, or you have good management in place, uh, the cash flow opportunities are fantastic. Um, economically, I feel that they're incredibly well hedged. So if you own a student rental, if the economy is up and it's in a boom, everyone wants to go to school to get into the market. Um, if the economy is down and in recession, everybody goes back to school to get educated so that they can hopefully get mm -hmm. a job in the market. So student rentals are, are kind of that, that perfect economically uh, hedged uh, investment, which I really loved. Like that was the thing that drew me to it. 
is knowing that I was, I felt safer investing in, in that market, um, from an economic standpoint. Um, but then beyond that, just at face value, the cash flow is better. Typically. Uh, I know there's a lot of people out there that want to get in and they kind of, they're squeezing those, those cash flow margins, but it's still there at Western today. You can still go buy something in cash flow on a student rental right away. So you mentioned adding value. So mm-hmm. is that the kind of thing that you can do with a student rental and how would you go about it? Well, value from an investor standpoint um, is, is, always, uh, is always about adding income, right? What can you do that will add income? Like, and not just like hopefully add income, like for sure add income. So in a student rental, adding a bedroom is adding value. Um, I noticed that adding an ensuite bathroom to a bedroom uh, could fetch me an extra $100 a month. And um, so I, I ended up trying that on a project in 2016. It was kind of a, a test to, to put on suite bathrooms in a renovation project. And I built an addition. Um, and I, I just, I aim to make it something that like when a student walked in, they'd be like, holy wow, like this is un- unreal. Like get all excited about it. Um, be, be so excited about it. They'll tell all their friends that you guys got to see my place. I live in the nicest place, uh, the nicest place in town. Um, I wanted to do that. So um, at the time, I, I didn't know what I would get for rent. I, I figured I'd get six fifty or six hundred, um, you know, compared to five hundred, what you would have been able to get otherwise. Um, long and short, I, I started at a six hundred, and I eventually uh, got that thing rented for seven hundred a bedroom um, uh, on my next my next turnover. So um, the cash flow. You know, I'll give you an example, that property alone, I was able to pull every dollar I had into it out. So my purchase price, all my renovations on the refinance when I was done, I got everything out. And I did another property right after that same summer, uh, pulled every dollar, almost every dollar out. I had like six or $7,000 invested in that. And uh, so that was a summer where I acquired what is now worth maybe $1.3 million of properties with not a dollar of my own money. And uh, that's, that's why value add for me. That's why it's so important. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about that a little bit more because you mentioned that it was difficult to get uh, the financing for this type of thing. And mm-hmm. I would imagine it's even more difficult to go back and refinance it after you're done. Um, how do you go about that? Who are the lenders that will look at it and what, what are they looking for? Like, because I would assume that clearly now you've taken something that, I don't know what the the place is to begin with, but let's just say it looks like a single family home when you take it over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now you're adding bathrooms to every bedroom and clearly it's not a single family home anymore. Well, that's a great point. Uh, and, and that is sometimes, uh, that is some feedback I've had from appraisers uh, when they've gone out. I've heard that come back to the lender. Oh, the appraiser's concerned, you know, want it to be a, uh, still want it to be a functional home. Um, but uh, kid you not, there are uh, brand new houses in Hamilton right now with ensuite bathrooms in every bedroom. So it's not, uh, it's not an entirely unique concept, even for families. Um, but uh, what I would say there is, uh, from a financing <clears throat> standpoint, yes, you still have to make it function as a normal home. So it's got to have a living room. It's got to have a proper kitchen. Um, a couple extra bathrooms aren't going to hurt you, but you do need to have everything that a normal home is going to have. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to do a Frankenstein house. I'm trying to do really, really nice house that, uh, that satisfies the needs, uh, as far as who will finance them. I've had, I'll tell you my approach first. My approach was, I saw a lot of people doing these deals. Like I saw, I saw them selling like a hundred in a year, like a hundred projects in a year on this, in this particular area of London. So I was watching it and I'm like, well, if somebody else can do this, I can do this. So I, um, I started calling, I was looking up who owned the properties and I started calling the owners. I would Google them, see if I could find them. I found a couple of dentists and lawyers that were, were buyers at these properties. And uh, I called them and I said, Hey, who, who did your financing? And they'd be like, Oh, it was this guy or it was referred to me by my realtor. So I'd speak with that realtor. Um, and uh, by doing that, I not only found, uh, I, fa- I not only found a, uh, a, a source for financing that was doing these deals, I found, uh, I found potential buyers for product that I wasn't going to be able to keep too. And uh, so it was, you know, asking questions and digging is, uh, is absolutely critical. I really want to stress that, like, just cause you don't have the answer, like pick up your phone, do a Google search, call people, you will get an answer. And uh, that's how I did it. So there isn't, it's not like I can tell you that CIBC is going to do these deals, but I found a guy at CIBC that could get it done. 
um, did many for me. A uh, huge, huge factor in creating wealth for me was this one person. He created mm-hmm. so much wealth for me. Uh, <clears throat> another person at RBC. So I had a connection to private banking at RBC and I called the lady and she's like, no way, never. Like, I can't believe you'd even bring this to me. Like she didn't say it in those words, but she was so rude. And I'm like, you're private banking. You're supposed to be like nice and friendly and treat me like gold. Um, not so. Uh, so anyways, then I find another RBC guy. Like I just asked around investors I know, and I, I got a name of a guy. And so I, I gave him a call and uh, he's like, yeah, we can do that. It's case by case. Well, sure enough, he got me a deal done. So um, I, I'll hear people tell me you can't finance student rentals. And you know what? I used to believe that. I worked in the financing industry and everyone would come to me with a student rental And the only way they were getting done is if you're sneaking them through as if they were completely just family homes. And, um, you know, it it was frustrating to me and I'm like, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, so, so it was key seeing other people doing it and then finding out who they were using was, was what saved me, what allowed me to do that strategy. Uh, and now it's just about taking it to the next level. Like I'm seeing what a lot of investors are doing now to get things financed and I can tell you to take the, the issue away with student rentals, what you can do is you can just go commercial financing. So rather than go to your regular residential person at BMO or Scotiabank, you can actually ask to speak to their commercial financing department. And even if you have single family homes, their only requirement is that you have a total of five doors or more. And now, now they'll treat you as a portfolio and they'll allow you to finance individual properties and you can just add. So you can just keep acquiring properties and just keep adding them to your portfolio. And that is subject to an annual review. So they're going to, they're going to ask you to see your financial statements every year and make sure you're keeping your ratios in line. But uh, there's basically a recipe where more is better when it comes to those type of lenders. They're like, give me more. We want a bigger portfolio. We want you to do more deals. Uh, Very opposite to, to the way residential lending typically is. Yeah, it makes sense though, because the more that you have, the more that's in your portfolio, the more leverage that, you know, they have basically against you. To, to make sure you stay in line, they're exposed too, right? Um, but I think the, the key is like, if you're, if you're playing ball, because they review you regularly, right? So if they see that you're playing ball, you're, keep, you're abiding by their, their requirements, <laughs> why wouldn't they want to give you more loans? So you just mm-hmm. need to be effective at, at adhering to their requirements, which is really debt service. So I'm not sure if your listeners are going to be familiar with this, but debt service ratios, uh, typically a lender wants you to have your income 1.2 times your, uh, your total uh, debt service. And okay, go a little deeper into that then. Well, the so, debt service would be, uh, would be your, your mortgage basically. So, um, so operating income is basically, we start with your rents, we take off vacancy, we take off maintenance management, utilities, snow plowing, garbage removal, anything you do on your property, uh, anything that's going to show up in your financial statements more or less. Um, and then, so once you have that number, you subtracted all that stuff off, that's your operating income. So it's before your mortgage. So then you're going to compare. So say your operating income is $40,000 and your total debt service for one year, which is 12 mortgage payments is $35,000. Well, uh, you could work that quick math. I think we're around 1.2 or 1.15. 1.2 is generally the requirement. Sorry, did that help? Like I know it's- Yeah, no, it does. It, it, it really does. And I mean, people can go back and listen to it again, right? If they want to understand it a little bit better. Yeah, and if, if they want to- I know you'll give my contact at the end. Like I have a, a spreadsheet that calculates that. So if somebody wants to reach out to me, I can, I can try and make that available for them. There you go. Uh, Andrew, walk us through your deal analysis process. Uh, how do you decide whether or not a property is worth adding to the portfolio or not? Well, the first, first check, which I'm sure you guys are the same is location, right? Um, so for, for students um, specifically uh, talking about that, I look for, am I near an arterial road that runs right into campus? So at Western and every university is different. Like I I don't believe that just because this works for me at Western, it would work at another university. So you really do need to look at, at your specific market. But at Western, there's the east side of campus, which is highly, highly desirable to live. There's the west side, which is sort of up and coming. No one used to want to live there, but it's becoming more and more popular. And the key thing is if you're going to be on the west side, you've got to be like close to a bus stop. And I actually will look and I'll make sure that, that the students can walk to the bus stop in four minutes or less. 
that's a that's a big thing. Five minutes is is fringe. I might still look at something that's five minutes, but I like to be able to when I show my properties, I like to actually be able to say, "Hey, look!" And if you look just right over there, that's the bus stop, and you can actually just point at it. They can see how close they are. So if I'm not within walking distance, I want to be able to see the bus stop from the front porch. Um, that's most ideal. Otherwise, you will get pushback from students. They will say, "Well, we we like the place, but it's just a bit far. Like some of the roommates are having trouble." To me, that was just never something I wanted to own long term. So if I was going to end up in that standpoint, don't like that. Don't uh, don't typically want to get into that. Um, so what do I look for beyond that? Um, if I know my location's good, I'm looking for something either that's already been renovated or at least you know I know the plumbing is modern ABS. The, the electrical is definitely, uh, you know, at least ungrounded copper. Hopefully it's, you know, modern wiring with, uh, with grounded copper. Um, if it's not, then I have to start looking at, can I add the value to this property? And you know what? More realistically, I'm a value add guy. Like I'm not just buying to buy and hold. I'm looking for a property that I can buy, renovate, add some sort of value to in some way and pull every dollar I have out and cash flow, like that's the simple answer. <laughs> Every dollar, if, if product can satisfy those things and is in a good location, uh, I'm pretty much in. And um, obviously that's challenging, <laughs> which is why, um, you know, I am picky about deals, but uh, that's the main thing. And then, you know, beyond that, like we could dig deeper into the, the specific cash flow numbers, but that's really it. If I got the cash flow, I know in Ontario that we have a housing crisis coming. Real estate is going to go up. So, so my, my main initiative here, one of my main initiatives is to just get my name on a lot of real estate to get my name on a lot of stuff. But you know, key requirement to be able to sleep at night is that my account is constantly building every month and not shrinking every month. And some challenges, we're going to talk about some challenges that you've overcome and um, you know, faced, obviously everyone's got some challenges you faced and uh, what are some that you've gone through and how have they helped you move forward? One challenge that, uh, that happened is I, I basically had a deal um, come across, and this was, this was back in like 2013. Uh, it was a house and, and I ended up um, having an opportunity to go to, to basically buy a lot, tear, tear it down and build a duplex. And um, I was way too green at the time, um, took, took a shot at it. And um, basically, here's, here's what happened. Um, the neighbors found out what I was going to do. And they, they called the site plan office in the city hall and the city hall told them, you know, this is, this is the blueprint. This is the proposed drawing. And um, basically uh, they didn't like it. And they, they called me a big, bad Toronto developer. I made the newspaper. Um, I seem to recall being on the front page of the, the London free press uh, with 40 people standing on my, my property's front lawn uh, saying, not in our backyard. Don't keep us in the dark. And uh, it was this moment where I thought, you know, I had like CTV calling me wanting to do an interview calling again, calling me the big bad Toronto developer trying to destroy the, the neighborhood, basically take the character out of the neighborhood. And I had this attitude, like, this is silly. Like, I can't believe this is happening, but I'm not going to talk to you guys. I'm not doing an interview. Like I'm not going to go uh, city councilors calling me. I'm not going to do any of that. Um, and I, I realized what a horrible mistake that was. If I had just shown them who I was, you know, a young guy, um, you know, trying to create value in a neighborhood and rather than this big bad guy that just wants to destroy <laughs> a neighborhood, um, I, you know, it could have gone a lot differently, but what happened is they passed an interim control bylaw, sneaky, very sneaky stuff. Uh, so it, which basically meant all construction, all permits were halted for one year in that neighborhood. And then simultaneously they instituted a neighborhood character study uh, for heritage so they started investigating the neighborhood's historical uh, significance, which I can tell you this entire neighborhood is wartime houses that are sinking because they're built in a floodplain and, and they were done with improper footings. So like most of that neighborhood needs to be torn down, uh, should not be considered historically significant. But because people are emotional and the neighbors were emotional, they petitioned their city councilor to get that pushed forward and they could find you know, there's some heritage element there, obviously, otherwise it wouldn't have gone through, but it's very unreasonable and irrational in my opinion. Uh, but I just didn't handle it well, you know? So, so the, the, the long story turned short there is that, that no development was able to happen. And uh, that property ended up being held by my would-be partner for four years uh, until we were in a position to sell it and, uh, and just recoup. But, you know, 
that was headaches for years created by my own sort of recklessness, um, getting into something that was ill-advised that, that wasn't, um, you know, wasn't something that I had the skill set at the time or, or had, or the expert help at the time. And if I had uh, had it to do again, well, for one, I would have sought better advice and probably never would have even attempted it because I don't think it was an ideal project. So it's probably a blessing in disguise, but, uh, you know, what that taught me, like if we want to transition into how that helped me is that you really need to mitigate your risks when you're trying to develop or trying to construct or even just trying to renovate. <clears throat> and you need to understand who has a say in what you do. Like if you're, if you're asking for a minor variance on your property, I'm not sure if, if your listeners will be familiar with this, but a minor variance is basically when say you want to add a second parking space, but the zoning bylaw says you can't have, you know, two parking spaces side by side or something like that. Uh, every municipality is different, um, then you would have to go in and apply and you have a chance that the neighbors come out and say, no, we don't like that. And they can influence the decision of the committee of adjustments. So you might not get approved. And if you're ever in a position like that, and this is part of my analysis, so we'll kind of build it into that. I now look for a plan A, B, and C. Like if my plan A hinges, like if, if I need, in order to be successful, if I need plan A to work, that's probably a bad deal. Uh, so Plan like a, if you need a variance, you're saying in order for plan A to work. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying? Well, no, no. Yeah. So, so say I'm only profitable if plan A works and I need a variance. Right. That's not a deal <clears throat> I'm doing. That's not a deal I'm doing. So Agreed. I'd, I'd look at a deal where, you know, best case scenario, I can get a variance or I can get a zoning change or I can get approval to add a unit. Um, that's plan A. That's like exceptionally profitable. In plan B, I'm looking, you know, can, what can I do, you know, refinance and still cash flow or, you know, be at a break even cash flow or, you know, something I would ideally like plan B to still be a profitable, highly advantageous uh, option. And then plan C in a worst case, you know, break even, but I'm still okay. So there's no scenario where I'm, I'm feeling like I just, you know, it's going to, it's going to negatively impact me financially. Um, so call me careful. I probably do less deals because that's my approach, but going through what I went through and I didn't even mention this before, but at the same time as that whole development thing was blowing up, my, my situation in the U S was blowing up because I bought a couple of rental properties down there. Uh, and, uh, one of them got destroyed, gave it away. It cost me like $40,000. So this was all happening to me all at once. And it was like just the perfect storm of everything going wrong. All of my mistakes, all of my, uh, you know, my naivety, uh, to do with being, you know, younger and, and inexperienced, all, all collapsing on me all at once, uh, just made me careful. It made me really careful. It made me stronger. So let's talk about why you didn't just quit then, then what made <laughs> you did. not quit? <laughs> oh, is that I right? did for a while as the dust settled. I was about a year and a half of just like not even paying attention to real estate. I still had my, my two properties. Uh, I had the one in Ohio still, uh, the, the other one I gave away, I actually gave it away for free. Um, and, and that was actually a blessing. I was, I was told that I was going to have to pay somebody to take it, or I would have to pay to demolish it and then give it back to the city. That was kind of where I was at. Uh, so I was fortunate that, uh, that the property manager that didn't do a good job ended up actually taking it from me. So, you know, maybe that was part of his plan. Uh, but anyways, uh, so I got out of that and, um, okay, sorry to go back to your question. I don't, I don't want to breeze over it. Could you repeat it? Was just like, what made you not quit? Why oh. did you stick with it? Okay. So as that was all, all happening, um, I basically said, I, I can't handle this. Like I had like a nervous breakdown. Um, I, I did, I, I put my attention elsewhere for a while. I, I looked at, uh, at, um, you know, kind of just focusing on the mortgage business, doing some other stuff <clears> and just saying I'm out. And, uh, a couple of years passed and what got me back in is probably the better question is that my friend was just crushing it. Like we had been friends since 2010. We both graduated from Ivy at the same time. And uh, he was just a very aggressive real estate investor. And every time I talked to him, he's like, oh yeah, I just did another hundred thousand dollar profit flip. Or I just did, you know, I added this many properties to my portfolio. I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute, why did I get out of this game? Like just because I got hurt and just because I lost, doesn't mean I need to be a loser. <laughs> and uh, I, I just said, you know what? Okay, I'm going to find a way to do this. And that was when I started calling everybody. I said, you know what? If I'm going to do it again, I'm not going to get burned again. I'm going to be smart. I'm not going to make the mistakes. I'm not going to expose myself. And those lessons, like I said, um, they made me call every single person, know the lender I was going to work with, know if I was going to sell a property, who I was going to work with. Uh, and then when I was dealing with contractors, they made me 
watch them like a hawk. From that day forth, when my property manager basically had stolen my money, took my property for free, and that was like a blessing to me, um, all that stuff happened. I knew that I needed to control things. So a um, friend of mine, uh, you might know him. He's got the TV show, Everyday Investor, Rav Tour. He always says, knowledge mitigates risk. Well, I think, I, I said to him, I had him on my podcast. I'm like, Rav, it's not just that, knowledge and control. So yeah, one thing to know. The other thing is to control. And to assume anyone knows what's, to assume anyone's looking out for my interests like I would look out for my interests would be naive. And I just realized that no longer exists. A turnkey property that's truly hands-off doesn't exist. You can be mostly turnkey, but I just learned that I'm going to have to take care. I'm going to have to be careful. And I followed my friend's lead and, and you know, I have a couple of really good mentors that, you know, thank God for them. I got back in the game. I got back in. And when I got back in, I was, I was way more successful than I was the first time around. And I moved way faster. And, you know, I think you touched on a bunch of things there, but the one that really I think sticks with me the most is just knowing the highest and best use and, and the, like, and the permitted use for the property, right? Especially, I think that that's one of the key things. And you mentioned floodplain there. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are a bunch of things that will hold you up. And I would agree 100% on, on not um, counting on getting the variance because all it takes is that neighbor who just will not quit. Um, yeah. I always, I always say, like, if there's a chance of you getting a no to whatever you want to do with it, if there's even a chance, then yeah. don't even, don't even bother. Well, unless you know that no is okay, right? Is no okay? Because if no isn't okay, then don't do it. Like, look at my Ohio example. The only way that worked, it, this was a market that was depressed. It was losing population every year. I bought a property for twelve thousand dollars. <throat> another one for thirteen. The only way it was profitable is if everything went smooth, minor renovations got done quickly, tenants went in, and I got cash flow. There was no strategy to sell. Like say I didn't like the property manager that I had lined up with before I got down there. I could try other ones, but I didn't know anyone else. And there's no guarantee that they'd be any better. Like what if I don't like the tenant demographic? There's, when I sold the other house that there was really not even that much wrong with, because of the way their their transfer system works, I basically got half my investment back. Hmm. So how I, you know, I cash flowed for for a few years. So that one, at least I think probably broke even the grand scheme, but I didn't have a good plan A, B, and C. So yeah, like again, yeah. So you were saying, you know, if, if no is a possibility, I truly do, I do look at that. So I'll give you a success example. I, knowing some of this lesson, I found a property in that same heritage neighborhood years later and the heritage bylaw basically meant that no one else was looking at that neighborhood. They all know, they all knew you can't do anything. If you had wood siding, you cannot take that wood siding off and put vinyl. That was the rule. You can't change anything. Can't take wood windows out and put vinyl in. Couldn't do any of that. So I found a property that already had vinyl everything. I went in and talked to the heritage commissioner or the heritage planner. I basically pulled all these strings and worked out all these things. This was a power of sale property I found on Kijiji and I bought, it was the most profitable deal I've ever done. I bought the property uh, conditionally and this guy did not want to do it, but I agreed to give up half my deposit if I didn't close. But I had already spoke with the heritage planner and he gave me a 99% yes. Like 99% yes, 1% no. It's like, I can get this done. So I'm like, okay, risked about seven, $8,000 plus the deposit. So yeah, it would have been maybe around $10,000 to risk with a possibility. I knew there was a possibility of earning about a hundred and hundred plus thousand dollars on the deal. Um, I got the yes. We tied it up, got the yes, ended up closing the property. Um, it, it basically, we bought it for my business partner and I, and our company, we bought it for, uh, 215,000 and sold it for 600,000 after we were done renovating, uh, about a, just short of a year later. So it was about a $200,000 reno. Okay. So it was a flip. And that's that one was a flip. That was in a company. Yeah, I had a company for flipping and that one was in the, in the company. And that was the plan rate from the get-go with that one was flips. Yes. Yeah. So what was it that you were looking for uh, a yes on? Because we didn't touch on that. You just said you were looking for a yes. So what was it you were so trying to do? Would they allow me to build an addition? The only way this house, it was wonky floors up and down. Um, you know, it, it, needed some, it needed some structural fixing. I had to flatten out the floors a bit on the inside, but then I also needed to extend back. And I needed to be able to, to add a couple of bedrooms. Uh, so 
you know, when I asked, they're like, you can't go up, you can't change the line of the house. So you have to follow the existing line of the house. So if I'm looking at it from the street, the house is absolutely no different. That was the criteria. So it was kind of a bit of a, a challenging situation, but I looked at it and I, you know, talked to my engineer and we, we both thought it was possible. And since it was already vinyl, I'm like, that's easy. I can keep the vinyl. Like I'll just use the vinyl siding. We'll just continue it on. Um, and it, it was just the perfect opportunity that it was, that it was already vinyl siding. It was already vinyl windows, aluminum door, uh, asphalt shingles, all the modern things you would want so that I wasn't restricted. And they, and he said, sure enough. Yeah. I don't see any problem. We'll, we'll allow you to do this. Hmm. Okay, man, we could talk about that all day, but I guess we'll move on because my, my <laughs> I want to go into the whole question of, well, I mean, clearly, whoever put the vinyl siding on didn't get uh, a permit to do it in the first place or any of that, right? Well, it's timing, though. It was timing, though, because the bylaw didn't come into effect until like 2013. Uh, oh, so they'd the done heritage it before control. That. So if they had done it before, it was just a done deal. So, so <clears> in that neighborhood, it's so short-sighted, but this is the way the average homeowner is, the whole nimbier, not in my backyard. Um, they, they think, oh, development, that's bad. But what they don't realize is on average, they probably discounted their property by 25% of what it would be worth or more. Could be 25 to 50% on average discount in that neighborhood because you cannot change things. Mm -hmm. and, and so many houses literally just need to be torn down. Like there's just no hope for them. Those people, and, and I know the type of neighborhood, and those people aren't moving anyways until they're carried out of there, so yeah. it doesn't matter to them. Yeah, I feel like that neighborhood will come back. I think, I think they're going to undo that decision at some point. We'll see. We'll see. Multiple exit strategies. That was the biggest thing there, I think, for me. I and mean, then just ABC, yeah. have, a different, have multiple ways out, because you're right, you're, you're screwed if plan A doesn't work. Um. Obviously, a lot of renovation strategies, a lot of very successful uh, burr strategies. What are the biggest things that, that you look for? What are the biggest things that other people should look for and be aware of uh, when working with contractors in these renovation projects? Well, um, be careful of general contractors is uh, the first thing I'll say. I have never used a general contractor, which might sound odd. I've always subcontracted everything myself, my HVAC guy, my plumbing guy. And how did I find them? I used my phone. I used the internet. Uh, I used other investors in my network. Um, so using a general contractor, the challenge is there's not full disclosure of profitability. Uh, on the contractor side, there's not full disclosure of how extras work, when changes are needed, what's going to happen. So depending on the scope of your project, if you surround yourself in like, we have local investor meetups where there's contractors that do duplex conversions all day long like they do it for like five or six different investors in the room if you're working with somebody like that uh then you're pretty much going to be guaranteed to know what you're getting into like if you're just copying another investor using the same contractor similar style house you're probably not going to have any problems so reputation with a gc uh general contractor for short um so reputation with a gc would uh would be the most important thing like i can't i cannot overstate that um, look for people who are getting jobs. If you need to go drive around the neighborhood and see where a, a general contractor is working, go drive up to the house, find out who owns it, talk to the owner and ask him about their experience. If you see a sign sitting on a lawn, go knock on the door, say, Hey, it looks like you just use, you know, contractor X, Y, Z. What'd you think? Did you have an experience? Would you recommend them? Would you use them again? Did they stick to their budget? Um, Clarity of, of uh, the items, like an itemized invoice versus we'll do the project for $5,000 written in an email that doesn't even have a, uh, you know, a proper signature in it. Uh, that's the level of sophistication of some people that, that operate out there. And mm -hmm. uh, you got to watch out for that because what kind of variance do you have? I mean, what kind of leverage do you have with the contractor? Um, when I, when I was working with, with contractors early on, I, I would, I would, be very, very careful not to assume that they were looking out for my best interests. And I don't think that, that anyone uh, should do that. Don't assume anything. Don't assume that somebody's going to do a good job because they say they will. Don't assume they're going to show up and get it done in three weeks because that's what they said. Almost no one who says something's getting done in three weeks gets it done in three weeks. <laughs> it's a, the default is if they say one week, plan for three. Um, you know, I, I see it all the time. Um, so you have to know the difference between what you're told and what's real and, and be able to plan for the worst case. So they're telling me, 
you know, hundred thousand dollar renovation. Have you spoke with their other clients? What was the difference between what they were told and what they got? Like, do not hire somebody unless you know somebody else that's hired them or you have a specific referral that you, you can trust. It's, it's roughly the equivalent to picking a tenant and not getting a landlord reference. Uh, like you need to do your digging, do, do your research, because I would say probably it's 90, 10, you know, 90% probably wouldn't be a good fit for you to work with 10% maybe. Um, so do your homework is, is my number one. Not everyone's going to be a, their own general contractor like I've been. Um, but I don't think it's a bad idea. It's just time consuming. Like I've done that. I, not that I, I have swung the hammer myself, but that's not my skill. Uh, it's really, my skill is with my phone. Anytime I'd find myself pulling out a tool, I'm like, this is really bad use of my time because I'm not good at this. So I would just call people. If I didn't have the right person on site, I'd, I'd call, find another one. Um, and, and until I got my projects done, but that's a early on, that's a bad way of doing things. That's a good way to, to get an inferior product. So I would just say, focus on your, your networks, find people that, that have done what you want to do, find out who they used approach finding your contractors that way you will reduce headaches it won't eliminate them but it will definitely reduce them um, one other thing i would suggest and it's related uh, would be to get into the industry in some way um, i know both of you guys ended up becoming realtors after being investors is that correct yeah yeah, yeah. think about how much you learn being in the industry like i got into mortgages i learned so much i know guys that got into appraising got into working at the bank got into uh, something related, it can help you. I'm not saying everyone needs to do that, but it's just how fast do you want to learn? How, how fast do you want to improve your skills? Uh, there are alternatives, right? You can pay a coach. You can, you can go work under somebody for free. Um, you know, you can go to networking meetups, but a once a month meetup, in my opinion, is not enough. I mean, now though, like, you know, with, with podcasts like yours, um, you know, and, and all the content that's out there, like the learning curve is being, being reduced. But uh, there's still, you can't learn this stuff overnight. So I think regular exposure, however you can do it, getting around stuff is, is absolutely critical. Let's just touch on one thing before we move on from this uh, renovation piece. Yeah. So you, you're being the general contractor in that you would go out and you would find each of the sub trades to come in and do the job. So let's mm -hmm. talk about, uh, let's talk about that, that same flip that we were, were uh, running through earlier. Okay. So for something like that, it sounds like it was pretty intensive. You more or less gutted it. Is that? Yeah, not, not completely, but I mean, yeah, there was, there was a lot of work done. It was a pretty intense job. So we did have. So, sorry. So let's talk about who does what then in mm -hmm. that, in that scenario. So you have um, like how many different people are you working with on a project like that? Uh, it, it does depend because like I'll have a dry, I'll give you an example. Like on a project, I'll have my plumber, my HVAC, my electrician. Um, I will have a drywaller. I will have a roofer, you know, I'll have, usually I'd have, um, so for my typical model was to have a full-time carpenter that worked for me and he would be my site supervisor as well. So he would basically frame the addition. Um, you know, he'd work with, with some couple of general laborers that I'd, I'd put with him and, uh, you know, they'd be the same ones that would stuff the insulation, um, sometimes they'd be the ones that do my trim and door. Um, however, depending on how much trim and door there was to do, I, I would just go to a trim and door installer, like somebody who does, you know, finished carpentry, uh, and they would put on the door handles and all that stuff. I'd have a painter, um, I'd have a cabinet supplier and installer. So they do the cabinet supply and install. I'd have my own, um, granite company that, uh, that would come in and measure up and, and do the install appliance supplier, um, so I do try and get it out to many different people, but what I've found is really helpful is, is having really skilled people that can do all the in-between jobs. So I don't consider framing an in-between job, but my additions on those type of properties were built on concrete piers. So a good carpenter can do concrete piers in the ground. So I don't need to bring in a forming company. So we, you know, we'd rent an auger, sorry, we'd rent an auger and we'd, um, you know, we drill our holes into the ground. We, we put the, put our sono tubes in, pour the concrete. Uh, the carpenter would, would lead all of that work. And, um, and then, you know, build the addition, frame it up, tie it into the existing building. We'd call the roofer. They'd, they'd shingle up the, the addition. So, um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts. My, you know, my time was spent a lot on the phone, making sure people would show up on time because to me as an investor, borrowing expensive money, 
I'm looking at it saying I need to get to refinance as soon as possible. Cause every day right now with this expensive money, like on one of my projects, I worked it out to be like over $400 a day uh, in burn. So it can cost a lot of money if you're spending, if you're, if you're using private money uh, completely. And um, yeah, to me, timing is just absolutely critical, especially in the student game. Cause I'd be, I'd be getting stuff where I had students signed up to rent the place out in September 1st. And I would be taking possession of the property on April 30th or May 1st. So May 2nd work starts. I've got just under four months to be completely done my renovation and be ready for kids to move in. Yeah. So, so, I mean, there are pluses and minuses of doing it that way. I I would definitely say that that is, that is maybe something that most people might want to do after they have went through the process a couple of times with a general contractor, possibly, Mm -hmm. or, or try to take on something a little bit smaller to begin with. Sure. You know what? I think in hindsight, like just looking at the quality of my earlier product, like I I just feel like I would never want to do that again. I would want it to be better and not saying that anyone else would notice. I'm, I'm a perfectionist, so I just don't like it. I want anything with my name on it to be fantastic. So, um, yeah, I would say work with a good GC, right? Like it's never been easier, Rob. Like you've got the meetup, I think, um, out your way, uh, Quentin does a meetup there. Um, you know, you can get around a room full of people that are using good general contractors. I didn't know about that back when I did this. And you know what, had I, I, I could have done things differently. Maybe I wouldn't have. Uh, because I did do it very cheap. So, you know, that's one thing, right? It was getting started. It was, it was something I needed to do maybe to get started. Goals. Let's, let's move on to goals and, and your, your own goals for your business, real estate business and uh, anything else for the next five years. What are you, what are you working on? What are you going to achieve? Well, I do have a, a, you know, a few goals that I'm, I'm focused on, but you know, the big ones are um, like, I want to double my, my, uh, my cash flow and my portfolio in this next year. I, I do feel like that's possible. I feel like there's an exponential, um, you know, performance curve as you kind of learn more and do more and connect with more people. Um, there's a way to do that. So I'm looking to double my cash flow this year, uh, which means I'm going to have to get into some larger buildings, um, you know, multiple units at once, um, get some efficiencies. I've really been working on that. Um, I've noticed that, you know, because of how involved I am in my projects, they take a long time, a lot of my time. Uh, so I, you know, I'm going to be trusting general contractors more. I just, because I haven't done it doesn't mean I, I won't. Um, it's just been something where I, I felt like I needed to, to learn. Uh, so that's one of them. Um, I am looking to, uh, to create a million dollars, um, and income between all my activities this year. So, um, be it, you know, properties I flip in my company, be it, uh, the construction business, be it, uh, you know, everything in between, including my rental income. So, um, these are aggressive goals uh, don't get me wrong. Like it's not because I've done it before that I'm making these goals. It's because I haven't done it. And, uh, you know, if you don't set a goal, you don't get it. Yeah. Shoot for the moon and get halfway there is better than shooting for halfway there and getting exactly. a quarter. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I like it. Um, now, Andrew, you are a podcast host yourself. Mm-hmm. You have your very own podcast where you talk to people in the real estate uh, industry and also other investors. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, so the podcast started uh, just because I, uh, a friend of mine just told me I was, I was a little chatty Cathy, I guess, when it came to uh, things I was interested in. And, and we always would talk real estate. He's like, man, you should start a podcast. So um, I had listened to some Gary Vaynerchuk and realized I needed to get out there. I'd been hiding under a rock, didn't build my network. People didn't know me. And I'm just like, why am I doing this? I, I have done some interesting stuff, like stuff that if I could teach my younger self, I would have been interested. So, uh, I decided to start it, um, was putting out like two, three episodes a week initially, uh, realized I could by no means keep that up. And, um, I eventually kind of settled on a, on a once a week kind of podcast and yeah, we're just bringing guys on that, uh, you know, can, can drive to me because it's an in-person thing. Um, and, uh, everything from guys that do burrs, uh, which has been a big part of my model, um, to people who are into development, people, uh, who are, you know, crushing 300, uh, you know, properties this, this year are aiming to, um, developers, everything in between. So all the things that I have questions on, it's just a, Hey, show up. And I'm going to ask you every question I got. And, uh, you know, I love connecting with other investors. And if I were to go to a networking meeting, these are the questions I would ask. So, you know, why not just do it in front of a camera was my thought. Awesome. Awesome. And it is called 
the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. Nice. And people can find that on iTunes. Yeah, you can find it everywhere podcasts are listened to. It's on YouTube as well. Uh, Spotify, all the above. Uh, just type in Andrew Hines. My last name is spelled H-I-N-E-S and you will find it. I'm not sure if you guys do this all the time, but I've seen the highlights of your uh, of a bunch of your podcasts. They always pop up on, on Facebook, I think. Yeah. Uh, most of the time is where I see them. And you're really into these numbers. Like we don't, we don't delve too much into the actual like uh, numbers for specific deals that people have done too much on this show. But, uh, but I noticed that you guys are really into that there. And I always wonder how the heck are you so quick with this? You go, Oh, well that's a, you know, 130% return on investment rate there, buddy. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. And they go, what? No, I didn't know that. And then you explain to them <laughs> how you came to that. So I always thought that was pretty impressive. That's funny, Rob. I, I think that's good video editing. Is uh, <laughs> it wasn't that quick in person, but I, I chop out the uh, the uh, the dead space in between. Um, but yeah, so we do dive into the numbers. You know what? There's a chronology to it. So early on, I was just fascinated by these other Burr investors. So the buy, rent, refinance, rent, repeat. Um, I was fascinated by the guys that would go in and pull money out and put it in their pocket. Like I, I loved hearing stories about people who would, um, in fact, actually Sandy, I just had uh, Mike Johnson on the show and he was talking about his, that he put a hundred thousand dollars in his pocket. Um, loved it. You know, I just, so early on, I just dig into those numbers and um, you know, that was like the first 10 episodes were really just educating on the concept of Burr and, and getting in, digging in hard. Uh, and then I kind of got less into the numbers uh, in a, you know, in, into the weeds kind of approach. And now it's more conceptual, right? Like if you, although every once in a while, I'll still dig in and, you know, give, let, let's go through. So I, I have some basics that I like to do, you know, go through what is your net investment after you refinance with the bank? So, you know, say you're in for $50,000 after you've done your renos, you know, refinanced. Okay. So what's your cash flow? you know, $5,000 a year. What's your principal pay down? I usually assume 3% a year, uh, principal pay down on your mortgage. So I add that number up and then I assume um, a 3% appreciation rate, depending on the rate, the area. So you add those things all up, you divide them by your net investment. We've got stories of people making 60% return on investment, a hundred percent infinity when they, you know, they got paid, you know, it's mm -hmm. nothing's better than when you get paid by the bank to keep a property. That is just the best. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're still happening too. They are, right? You just got to get creative, right? I mean, you guys must see this all the time in your business. I love what you do because not only do you have the podcast, every day you're working with investors. You guys are talking shop every day. And I think that's just a fantastic recipe for success. It's definitely fun. I wouldn't give it up. No. You know, um, we were at a, a, an REI meeting. Now that you mentioned it, it was Durham REI, uh, the one out here by Quinton D'Souza. And um, the, one of the speakers was there asking, okay, now, who's in a job, like write down the percentage of things you do a day in your job that you love. And, and I, I wrote down 50 and I'm looking around and they were asking for answers and everyone else is saying 10, 15. And I'm like, wow, I'm in a job where 50% of what I do, I love. Like, how can I ask for more? Still, I was like, how can I get it to 100? But yeah. that being said, 50 looked pretty good at that time. So, yeah. Um, I enjoy every minute of it, just being around investors and, you know, Sandy and I both for the most part focus on investor clients and it all it does is help us with our own stuff. Yeah. Cause you're constantly talking shop, right? Like you're asking that investor, you're trying to plan for them as if it was you. Right. And, and now that's in your knowledge bank forever that this is a way you can do a deal, man. That's awesome. And sometimes it hurts because people will ask me, Rob, like, you know, knowing what we know now about this, what do you think about it? No, man, you got to let it go. <laughs> Sometimes that's the answer, right? So, um, uh, uh, but, you know, uh, support of the people around us, I think is the more important thing. So anyway, uh, we got a, just a couple more questions. We've sort of, we could have probably almost done a double episode because I wanted to drag some of these other areas out more than we did, but let's move on. Um, we always like to ask for what, what, uh, the guest thinks is the best piece of advice that they could share with somebody just starting out in real estate. So for you, you've given us a bunch already, mm -hmm. but 
you know, what's one that sort of stands out to you? Well, I mean, okay. So the immerse yourself thing I talked about before, uh, just dive right in, um, get to the meetups. Um, you're going to spend time sitting in the rooms early on learning, but you know what the best learning people always say the same thing to me. Uh, the best learning at any meetup is getting out into the hallway and talking with the other investors. Uh, so that's one part of it. Listening to the breakthrough podcast off the hook, uh, going back to my podcast, right to the early, the early episodes and going right through the nuts and bolts. I know Matt McKeever, give him a shout out. Like he, his first, you know, handful of videos were teaching basic real estate concepts. The information's out there. Like you're gonna have to go full out if you are serious about this, because there's so many people out there that don't have money, right? They're not bringing money to the table. They're, they, they have their job and they don't have anything else. All they have is hustle and hustle isn't enough to do a deal. You got to have hustle and knowledge. So if you lack in that area or money and qualification, so those are the things that, you know, if you're going to attract a joint venture partner or what have you, you got to have those things. Uh, so if, if you don't have the knowledge, you got to go get it and you might have to hustle really hard to do that. Uh, but that'll help that, you know, so I think that's a, a big one. Um, but the knowledge is out there. Uh, take it in. And like I said, so the other thing, if you want to accelerate it, you can look at getting into the industry. You can look at being a realtor. It, it will help you. Is it necessary? No. Did I do that? No. But I, I mean, I did get into mortgages and it did teach me a bunch. You know what I've heard people say, and I often think that they're, they're lying. This is just sort of a thing that people say is they go, they say, you know, real estate is a means to an end for me. I don't, I don't enjoy real estate. It's, you know, I know it. I, I, I've figured out how to capitalize on it, how to do my strategy, whatever, but it's just a means to an end. But I, I find that a lot of people who are into this love it, just love it. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they're going to go out and they're going to buy a house because they need to buy a house. It's, they're still going to exercise, you know, the best way of, of making money in the market that they're in. So, um, so that's one of the things that I always thought was kind of odd, but when you're talking about going out and finding the information and learning, it's not hard for someone whose heart is in it. You can eat that up all day long. And I mean, for me, uh, I was in a situation where I was driving for eight hours a day. So what did I do when I got into this is I spent every waking second in that truck, either on the phone with Sandy, for example, at some points, or, or, or some other investors or listening to podcasts or taking in information, whatever way I could about real estate. And it wasn't a job. It wasn't a chore. It was a, as a passion, right? So, so now being where we are, uh, even five years later, there is so much more information out there, free information than there was when we were looking for it. It's not hard to find. That's all that people have to do. And, uh, and I would suggest that they listen to your podcast as well, for sure. Thank you. Now, how can people get in touch with you? We know where to find the podcast. What about if they actually want to talk to you, the man? Well, uh, the easiest place is uh, just either on Facebook or Instagram. My handle is at the Andrew Hines. So uh, just T-H-E-A-N-D-R-E-W-H-I-N-E-S. Um, that's, that's the easiest way. Just shoot me a message. Uh, also host a monthly meetup here in Burlington. I call it the Greater Hamilton REI Meetup. So if you ever you know, do want to come out and meet me, uh, meet fellow investors that are in this area, just, just talk and shop and having a beer. Um, you know, it's a great way to, uh, to get into the community. And I've made so many great connections just from people who've come out to that meetup. That's amazing. You have beer at the meetup or after the meetup? We do it at Nickelbrook Brewery. So remember how I told you <laughs> the, the best, the best conversations are in the hallway. Well, we do the whole meetup in the hallway. Oh, I like <laughs> that. <beer>. That's good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we're going to post all of those, um, those, uh, links in our show notes. So people will be able to reach out to you. They'll find the information for that meetup you were talking about. And uh, we can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing all this stuff today. Well, Thanks. thank that you guys. Awesome. You guys are the original pioneers of this. You know, I, I was listening to your podcast when it was the only one that I could find. And uh, yeah, kudos to you for, uh, for starting it so early. The Canadian ones anyways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The first pioneers. Ah, that makes me sound old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, keep it up. We got our pioneers hats in the other room.
I love, I love that. That was great. I think, and also, you know, all, so much information. You still got to go and get in into some FaceTime. I think. I think that's a big thing to remember. Go to some of those meetup clubs. Um, yeah. Especially if they have beer and, and they're. Yeah, uh, Sandy, come on out. Have a yeah. beer, man. Yeah. Okay, so Sandy, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, where would they do that? You can call into into us two eight nine three eight nine six eight four six or. Uh, Sandy at mckayrealtynetwork.com. And people can reach me at rob at mrbreakthrough.ca or I'll do the phone number 289-927-0464. And that's it for today. Um, you know, I think I'm going to leave with us with one little tip and, and it's the biggest thing that I think that I learned from you today, Andrew, and that is that um, you, it seems to me like you, you, didn't take no for an answer when you were looking for lending on those hard to do deals you just kept picking up the phone and calling until you got the answer that you wanted so that i think was my biggest takeaway today and i advise everybody else to sort of do the same thing you know just because you get a no from one person doesn't mean that you know it's over keep calling keep persistent and make it happen that's how it gets done definitely all right thanks guys and we'll see you next time Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks.